Okay. So, um, well, thank you, Tony. And um, this is this kind of work um, that I will be referring to today, the kind of work we're doing, is to some extent um, being somewhat opportunistic in the sense that a lot of the work that I'm presenting today and some of the findings comes from a lot of data sets that were not specifically designed to answer these questions. But at the same time, because of the kind of design we have been using over time uh, to actually study um, other issues, it became very clear that we could actually start um, helping to give some answers to, to some questions. Now, my link with Tony is that I think I've met him today for the first time. But actually, I kind of met him also uh, very early on, because when we were starting to put together some of the work we were doing in Tanzania, this was probably me as someone who had not been working on HIV AIDS. It's probably the only reference I knew. And kind of, kind of getting into this kind of questions of, of how uh, people are um, affected in, in, uh, in, in, in African contexts. So in a sense, um, what I will be talking about today takes a kind of a long-term view, a longer-term view, as much as we can now in an African context in terms of you know, the big changes that have been happening. And I was uh, intrigued just to be, uh, that it was just suggested that I'm taking a macro view. You know, for an economics, from an economist's point of view, I'm actually a very micro type of person because we're actually trying to dig further. But I appreciate very much because what I will be talking about will indeed be some kind of the big patterns that we can get, including in terms of the communities we have been working in. And then uh, the second part of this presentation, when Janet will take over, much more digging into some of the detail will take place. Okay, so what's the background? For me, you know, the, the kind of questions I've been uh, involved in some work on, and it's big questions that people ask a lot, and indeed the subtitle of this, this, this lecture had very much, you know, like what are these kind of big impacts? So my concern in all this is very much in terms of the bigger picture, what is the big evidence, what, what is the evidence base that we have? Can we actually start slowly from a lot of this micro evidence, start generalizing a little bit, at least for particular parts of Africa, in terms of what has now really been happening in the last 20 years? What has actually been the real cost to society and the cost to, to people in particular in this respect? Okay, and I will focus largely on Tanzania, a bit of work also from Kenya, uh, very little on Uganda and a little bit on Ethiopia will also sneak into it. Clearly the whole perception is, and if we go back in time, this was kind of the perception is that HIV AIDS, in terms of the big picture, it would engulf Africa, it would actually sweep away everything that is happening. It's maybe not quite as some, including economists like me, had been saying at some point that you know, the impacts would be as devastating as maybe somehow the, the picture has been, been, uh, been given. Now, at the same time, we do know that across Africa, countries I'll be looking at, like Ethiopia, Tanzania, Uganda, Bet, and Kenya, you know, prevalence rates, well, they are pretty high. They're actually not quite comparable to some of the prevalence rates in, in, in Southern Africa. But clearly, and this is something I definitely have picked up from, from other work as well, we should not underestimate prevalence rates like this, uh, in, uh, like we would get, say, in Tanzania at the moment. There's been a lot that's been said, for example, about the bigger picture in terms of life expectancy. Well, if we look at the recent data, yes, it's been dramatic, 
I mean, we definitely had a period in the 1990s that life expectancies were clearly predicted to be keep, keep on going down. What I find very interesting in the more recent data is that people say, well, actually, it's maybe somehow picking up again. And, and uh, definitely in Eastern Africa, with the exception of Kenya, there is some kind of a sense, well, maybe the worst is over and also these countries maybe start picking up onto some of the trends that we had seen up to the, the late 1980s. Of course, it's different in some other countries, and we see them here. The one I want to briefly stop, because it actually has some bearing on some of the micro work that has been happening as well, is this whole idea that economists had also been saying and the kind of thinking that people had been having in terms of, you know, whole economies, societies will be deeply affected, but economies will start collapsing, okay? And I'm, I'm given that I'm increasingly also in my, my work in, uh, with data, I like to take this kind of slightly longer look. And this was an article I found back in the Journal of African Economies, one of these really field journals in, in economics of Africa in 1992. You know, the kind of statements we get. This was some of one of these early simulation models of the kind of impacts that we will have. You know, and you can see it here. You know, um, they suggested you know it was going to be really big and it's going to be massive impact, not least because a whole generation of skilled workers would disappear. And our understanding at the time, this is 1992, was that we would think you know clearly such economies they're bound to collapse. You know, you see here their simulation suggested. HIV AIDS would cut the economy's annual growth rate of GDP in half. Now, if you think where we're there by then, it was actually uh, very low, about 1 or 2%. They were basically suggesting stagnation and decline that, that would happen. In fact, other parts of this paper suggested, you know, if you don't take this over time, GDPs would be stagnating and, you know, poverty would be massively increasing and so on. It's not necessarily quite what we've been finding. In fact, I have not attributed this paper to a particular name. Uh, you know, he's quite a good friend of mine. He's also the chief economist of African region in the World Bank. So, you know, the kind of predictions that he was making, clearly some of these kind of ways of thinking about it, it may not have quite happened. In fact, if we think about it, you know, the last 10 years, not least the last six, seven, eight years in Africa, have been remarkably good. It's probably the best we've had this since the late 1960s. There's been growth faster than most other regions in the world. Two-thirds of the population lived in countries with more than 4% growth uh, per capita per year. Um, you know, we have countries like Ethiopia growing at 10% per year, Tanzania 6-7% per year. You know, this is all actually quite a lot happening in, in terms of economics uh, uh, that's going on. And in any case, you know, in brackets here, are we actually maybe beginning to understand why some of these kind of macro results in that the economists were coming up with, maybe they didn't work really that well. You know, do we actually start getting a certain understanding why these estimates from these models were actually so wrong? And I think so. You know, in fact, I was just on the train reviewing another of these papers, and you, you see where it will go wrong. And it's actually, we kind of overestimated the way these economies were really functioning at a kind of the frontier of their potential. In fact, one of the sad things we've learned from all this is that all these skilled workers of, whose mortality rates have been increasing quite dramatically, unfortunately for Africa, they were not that important in the end. There were plenty of other skilled workers to replace them. Unemployment rates in, this, in the region were incredibly high amongst skilled classes. And while there was definitely a huge cost, actually, in view of the terms of if the cost was really by the labor force, 
it actually didn't really make up much of a difference. Or put it differently, the economic model that we were having in Africa, definitely in the 1990s, the underlying sources of growth, if anything, that we had, were clearly not being able to use skilled labor. So as a result, if we didn't have it, or had less of it, it didn't make such a big difference. And so we actually got into a situation where, where it's, it, it could have potentially been a big disaster, but almost because economies were not quite functioning, the impacts were not as big as some people had been expecting. Okay, why that is the case, whether people were using wrong economic policies or whether reforms were going too far or not too far, I'm leaving behind here and one can always talk about it in another context. So where do we find actually these bigger impacts when we start looking at, uh, at data and bigger data sets in the context of Africa? And where we really want to start looking, and indeed where we will come to, is that there are certain types of costs to, to, to society that will have implications in the longer term, but maybe have not been the obvious one we initially were looking at, okay? And so the question I want to ask and spend most time on is actually looking at some of this micro-evidence. Still the kind of big picture around this micro-evidence, but basically the impact on the people who's, uh, uh, the impact on the living in, in these societies. And basically, the kind of research I want to talk a little bit about is research that typically has been looking at what happens, what do we know now from quite a few different studies, that if somehow in these societies prime age adult mortality starts rising when you have more of this kind of adults in prime age that are actually dying, including because of HIV AIDS, but it's very hard in these studies to make necessarily the clear distinction, what are the impacts there for families and for children in this respect? button. So the key problems that we face with this kind of research, you know, we have masses of data in the African context. How do we think about this data? And can we actually start making statements whether any of these effects we observe, are they actually persistent? Okay? And that's the kind of question I want to ask. Okay? The persistence, will they actually have longer term consequences? Longer term consequences, maybe that we're not very well picked up in some of these other studies that, you know, the, the ones I mentioned earlier, these kind of simulation models in this respect. Okay. Now, as a piece of social science research, this is actually really difficult. Okay? And so one of the things that increasingly, not least in economics, of people working on data sets and large-scale surveys have probably more appreciated than they ever used to do before is something that people say coming from public health or from, from health have always quite well understood. You know, if you want to make statements, just be careful not to just throw out all kinds of seemingly uh, all kinds of relationships that you then suddenly start interpreting as if there's a causal link between them. And the problem here we have is that if we want to look at the impact of some kind of prime age uh, mortality, basically, say, a parent or an adult in the family dying, um, who are we looking at? For example, we want to do studies on orphanhood. Who are we, who, how are we going to look at the data? So ideal, ideally, you want to want to have the same child at the same age, the same point in its life cycle, with and without apparent death. Now clearly we can't observe these two, so we clearly have to look very carefully at our, our data sets. So clearly the, the issue is then, oh well, we can compare them with non-orphans. And in fact, a lot of the work early on in the study in social sciences related to what are really these impacts of prime age mortality 
Well, the best they could do is simply looking at, say, families where, of, of, where there are non-orphans. Now, the problem here is, is that HIV-AIDS was not affecting a population randomly, that it was just affecting, in a random way, a population, but clearly HIV-AIDS and the spread of the epidemic has also been, is clearly related to behaviors, certain types of people, whether it's to do with wealth, with skills, with location, or whatever, um, or indeed things we don't measure very well as, say, uh, certain behaviors related to uh, sexuality and so on. It would make it actually very hard to actually say the families we observe uh, where, where there is an, uh, an adult mortality uh, compared to a family where there is not, that they actually are perfect comparators. Okay? Similarly, you know, shall we go look at some of the early studies we're doing, look, for example, at the impact of fostering by simply comparing the children that were fostered with the children that are living in the same types of families. Again, you know, this comparison is not always self-evidently correct because it could have been, you know, that the children that end up being fostered, who knows, they may have been perceived to be better children, better endowed, healthier, or maybe just not when the time they come into the family. So the comparison, again, is all pretty hard. So we stuck with lots of problems. Another problem that we face with these kind of studies is that, you know, despite the fact that the epidemic is, is, is huge or the pandemic is huge, you know, these prevalence rates, from a simple sampling point of view, they are in most, say, Eastern African countries, maybe not that high. You know, if you're going to do a random sample in a population and you want to start looking at some of these patterns, six and a half percent, seven percent, eight percent. That's a small sample. You have to have a huge sample to pick up enough. To give an example, one of the things that we, and I struggle with in our research to research very well, is for example, uh, double orphans. Orphans, children who lost both parents. Well, the prevalence of this thing is typically is only about 10% of what we would call orphans actually are double orphans. And double orphans, typically in the, in the big samples, for example, in demographic and health service, there's only one of these services where it's over 3% in the sample. So these samples become very sm quickly rather small. So you have to really start thinking carefully how you can do it. Okay? The thing we don't deal with very well, and I want to emphasize this, and I will talk quite a little about the impact on children who've lost a parent, is that you know, orphans um, are still well, quote-unquote, only about one-third of the African orphans as related to HIV-AIDS. Okay? Now, that's, of course, quite a lot because it means that the orphan rate is estimated to be about 50% higher than it would have been without HIV-AIDS. But it does mean, in your studies, and as a social scientist, we don't have the luxury, for all kinds of reasons, to go and, uh, and test uh, whether people are infected, or indeed whether mortality uh, was related to HIV-AIDS, is that a lot of these things can still not quite very well dis distinguish between is there any different treatment uh, uh, impacts, say, orphans related to HIV-AIDS compared to others. At best, we can say these rates, the mortality rates, are much higher, and, this, uh, and there's a, um, a large percentage of these orphans would have been from HIV-AIDS. Okay. Right. So briefly look at the scale of the problem. Okay? So let's actually, and there's some really nice piece of work by Beagle and Filmer and a few others, a recent paper uh, by the World Bank that actually has been systematically building up from all the DHSs in Africa 
to some kind of broad pictures of the scale of these kind of problems. Okay? Now they've done a very interesting little thing because it's actually quite clever because DHSs have been repeating themselves but they're not panels. But we can start looking at patterns over time by, and, and in fact comparing them across countries to some extent because quite a lot of these surveys are quite clustered around certain times. So they took all the surveys done around 1993, so 1995, and for those countries for whom there was also one, somewhere around 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, or something like that. Okay? And so they're looking at some of these patterns. It's actually quite interesting to even look at this. Because we know about the, the, the pandemic crisis, and like countries like Ethiopia, there's a big concern that the crisis may only start, only just started to develop. We get already interesting things because of its peculiar reasons we see here in these data, that actually, 10 years later, actually, orphanhood has actually gone down. And partly it's to do, of course, Ethiopia in the early 90s was still coming back from probably even bigger crisis, because the, the generation there in 94, for example, uh, you know, that this is actually, I should be clear, this is 10 children 10 to 14, and the percentage of whom actually are orphans. Plenty of them will have been in the famine, will, will have been living in the famine, and parents may have died in 8485 and all the civil war situations. So actually, if anything, orphanhood uh, is actually stabilizing. Tanzania, similarly, some countries are higher. And in fact, in relation to the prevalence rates, some countries it's higher than you would have expected. And of course, you see that there's a big increases in high prevalence uh, countries like Malawi, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, why, where this percentage is, 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 is very large. Okay. What is interesting also, if you look at this broad pattern, we actually get surprisingly clear patterns of um, orphanhood by whether it's your father, your mother, or whether you're double orphans. Okay, and typically, uh, maybe not surprisingly, but about, about two-thirds, about 60 to 70 percent in virtually every country are paternal orphans, losing their father. Um, so the remaining, the remainder um, losing their mother. And amongst them, there's typically less than about 10 percent have lost both. Often, I as a social scientist presenting in audience and saying, well, you know, you know, there must be the case that all that uh, the rest of the family is also, you get, uh, you know, the, why would it just be impacts of maternal orphanhood of the father must also have been dying and so on. In the data, there's actually uh, a remarkable number that many people in the room here would probably have a better um, explanation for. But anyway, so we have these kind of patterns. Again, paternal orphanhood being large and maternal orphanhood not so large, you have to have already quite large samples to, for example, start studying, does it matter which one you lose, and indeed, uh, the caring relationships, how does it impact? So what are the specific questions? You know, the typical question where we all started with, and where definitely when I got involved in it, is really to get an understanding, and what are the longer-term impacts on poverty? And what are the mechanisms that it works through in terms of longer-term poverty? For example, in orphan children, does it work between health and nutrition? Does it work through education, uh, well-being? Uh, indeed, there's some interesting studies these days also on psychosocial well-being and so on. So, and then the big question is, are these effects permanent or at least persistent? Okay. Now, one thing is that we can look at all these lots of surveys across um, across um, Africa, these DHSs, and we can start comparing. In fact, this is actually even more. This is actually a simple result from, um, you know, comparing for 102 countries all the DHS data sets and simply looking there at um, what is 
what would seem to be at least the association between um, um, a, a form of orphanhood um, um, and then actually looking at the enrollment rates when both of your parents are alive and then whether you, for example, in the first one, this is paternal orphans, so here we have both parents alive, here we have paternal orphans. So simply the enrollment rate is actually the, the net primary school enrollment rate. Uh, in a few countries, the gross because of some reasons, but the pattern is still are very similar across. And so here's this line, okay? If it's on a 45 degree line, then there's no difference between families where both parents are still alive compared to families where uh, the father has died, okay? If it's below this line, it actually suggests the enrollment rates for the quote-unquote the normal families is higher than the enrollment rate for families where the, the, father, the father has died. Okay? So what we see here is that systematically when there's paternal orphanhood, these dots for each of these countries are below it. It's some of them actually are very close to it. Okay? In a few countries, very strangely, it's even better losing your father to be able to go to school. But actually it's what is interesting is the pattern comparing this with other types of groups. This is double orphans. Clearly there's lots of countries where double orphans clearly are, it seems to be, associated with much lower enrollment rates. And maternal orphanhood, very interesting, actually, definitely, this is, there is more a tendency to be off this line than you would have um, um, for, for paternal orphanhood. So suggestion here, hypothesis, maternal orphanhood may matter for these children more than actually paternal orphanhood. Double orphanhood clearly is very costly, it was at least as a hypothesis. Okay? Now, do we know that this is orphanhood or is it simply because of the kind of families that get affected by this mortality? Okay? So let's, let's say most mortality is related to poverty. Well, maybe what we're simply seeing in this line is just the link between poverty and enrollment rates because it just happens to be there's more orphanhood in families with, uh, with, with poverty than there, is, than there is in families not. Suppose that's the case. Now, with the HIV AIDS, it's a bit more tricky given what we sometimes hear about the, the, the way um, prevalence rates are distributed across the populations. But still, also is this a permanent impact? Is this just maybe a bit of a blip and at some point they recover? So this is the kind of thing that longitudinal studies have been trying to start addressing. Okay? Why is this interesting? Because if you keep on following quite large cohorts of children over time, you can actually start with a cohort of non-orphans. Where then shocks start occurring, some of these children will be following, they're losing their parents, and then you can at least have a better sense of the situation of the children where they were before it happened. Now, it's not perfect. We cannot fully address all the causality issues, but we can do quite a lot. And we could, if anyone's interested, uh, make this more precise as a statement. We can start looking over time from a population that's initially non-orphaned, are these impacts going to be different over time for children? And are these impacts actually going to be permanent? Okay. So quite a few studies have been done. And that's actually, uh, let me briefly summarize. And this is related to education. Some study in a, a short panel in, in, in South Africa, an impact of maternal orphanhood, but not of paternal orphanhood. Maternal orphanhood resulted in a loss of about half a year when uh, looked at in a two, three year period for a cohort of children. No significant gender differences. Tanzania, studied by Ainsworth and others, 
looking at data from 91 to 94 in, in fact, the area that I later on will say a little bit on in terms of study, maternal, um, delayed enrol uh, enrollment for some of the younger, uh, for the younger orphans. So they go later to school. It's not quite clear it's going to be permanent, but at least they see fewer of them in school. Paternal, again, no impact. For girls, what they saw is somehow a reduction in how much time was spent on learning, but it's not a very strong uh, effect. Kenya, significant effect for both kinds of groups, paternal and, and maternal, although we're a little bit worried about the quality of the elements of this study, there's no difference really between maternal and, and, and maternal, paternal and maternal. Kenya, again, this maternal effect much substantial. In this case, in the attendance of school, not just enrollment, which is poorly measured often, but whether they actually go to school. And they do actually a very careful long-term study, 10 percentage drop in attendance for maternal orphans compared to paternal where this is not happening. Again, no significant gender difference. The Ethiopia one is an interesting one. It's one of the Young Lives uh, studies. Young Lives is following in four countries in the world for 20 years, uh, two cohorts of children, 12,000 children in total. This is actually comparing when they were at eight and non-orphaned and going back at them at 12, what is really interesting, they're interviewing the children in great detail. They do all kinds of psychological, psychosocial measurement on the children as well and so on. What we find is maternal orphans, they are less likely to go to school, they're more likely to be absent, they have problems with reading and writing. The, mater uh, 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 the maternal orphans are also clearly having lower self-esteem and a lower sense of social inclusion, okay, measured by psychosocial instruments. Again, no effects on paternal, except paternal orphans, they think they're not going to be as rich uh, as the maternal orphans and the rest of the children think they will be. Their own expectations of later on in wealth. Okay, let me then quickly, last in the 10 minutes remaining, uh, talk a little bit about our Tanzania study. Okay? There, we, because I was a bit more involved, I want to also give you a little sense of you know, some of the issues and the questions and the problems and the, you know, the logistics uh, of the task. You know, we're quite proud of it, so I'd like to say a little bit more about what we do. We are in Kagera, as you know, an area that was definitely already in the 1980s and definitely in the 90s strongly affected by the crisis near Lake Victoria. And so what we did there, we wanted to study uh, we knew there was actually quite a, a detailed study being done, data collection, a longitudinal data set of about 900 households and all the people within it in 91 to 94. So we had the kind of strange idea actually for quite a while, but we were almost quite lucky that initially we didn't get any of the data released by the World Bank. But after about 2003, we bumped into the right person, which used to be a research assistant on the study, and said, you know, why don't we go and find all these people back? Let's just find all of them back. So in 2004, we did a study where we went to look for everybody wherever they went. We wanted to track them anywhere they went. And we were very optimistic that this would all be quite straightforward. Well, we found that we talked about 6,000 individuals in that region uh, that we needed to find. And we found out very quickly when we started doing initial way of trying to reconstruct the list of the people we had to follow, about 15% of that sample all ages had died by 2004, but unfortunately for us, 43% of the individuals were not living anymore in their communities. They all had gone. They went as far as Sweden. Uh, we haven't interviewed that one yet, but we've been, we went to Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, Kenya, Dar es Salaam, huge amounts of Arusha. We kept on looking for them in lots of different places. 
In the end, we found 87% of these people with a very long detailed instrument. We're ready now, we're going this year, we're going to, well, next year we're going to go back and we're going to find them again, which is going to be fun um, to see what's happened to them. But here what we have is an interesting example because a lot of these families that were in one of these early centers of the crisis, you know, of course they were ravaged by things like HIV AIDS and which had vast increases in adult mortality, not least in the 1990s. So we're actually going to look at what happened of those who now became adults in 2004. And what we found out is actually in this, for, for the, and we want to look at them at adulthood. Why we want to do that? Because then many of the things we want to look at, it's over. There's no catching up in nutrition. There is education is all being completed. They often are getting married, moving out of the house. That's it. If they had been affected then, then a big part of the impact is already there. We have 90% orphanhood, similar to the patterns that we have known about, 14% paternal, 7% maternal, and 2% double. The sample for us of the double orphanage really was too small. We never could find significant impacts, but the sample is small. But this is a bit of the problem that we had. Many of these people moved out and have formed new households. So we, had to, we included them in our study. So this is one individual from the original study. Now it meant we had to interview 26 people in that study somewhere in a totally different village. And we can imagine how it cascaded in the whole study. So our study has now 2,500 households, and, uh, and we will now we worry about what the next time we'll get. Let me get some of the key findings, OK? So you know, by, sim by having this very simple design, looking at longer-term impacts, but starting from a sample of non-orphans, and we identified within our data a sample of non-orphans, and then start looking at some of the longer-term impacts. Now, the first thing we did, what is the impact on the family in terms of, say, the consumption and poverty impact of the family they were, uh, they were living in now? Well, what we find, actually, is that adult mortality, this prime age adult mortality, we find it tends to have result in lower consumption, about 7%, for the first five years. If the shock happens within the last five years, we have quite a big impact on consumption, raising poverty levels in the terms of basic food consumption and, 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 and uh, material well-being. But the effect, actually, we can't find any of effects if the shock occurred longer than five years ago. Actually, it's quite consistent with some of these earlier work we had, is that actually the way these communities, there are shocks, but somehow communities and, and, and families get to reorganize themselves, and the kind of pure wealth things effects may not have been that persistent. And I, in, in our study, we could contrast this with, for example, a big harvest failure. If a big harvest failure occurred 10 years ago, it will still cost you 10 years later. The persistent effects of these kinds of shocks actually is much more persistent than the shock of losing some uh, key member in the family for primate mortality. Okay, but when we look carefully at the children, we did find very strong effects. When we look at adulthood, is that starting from a sample of non-orphans, those who lost their mother uh, during the period of the study in this 10 year, they tend to be two centimeters shorter at adulthood. And this is doing further statistical work, and we have a few papers published on all these things. You know, the, the effect is extremely robust, uh, controlling for a whole series of other factors. No gender impact and no impact uh, of, paternal, uh, of paternal orphanhood. It's only for maternal orphans and no impact for paternal. On education, again we find, as the pattern seems to be emerging in quite a lot of studies, losing your mother has education effects as well. 
about one year less of education. This is a sample where the mean years of education is about six. They have about one year less, the orphans, by the time they got into adulthood. You know? So they may be delayed enrollment, but they'll never catch up. A year is lost, at least, on average. And no impact on a paternal orphan, unless by the time you lost your father, you were already in school. If you were, sorry, there's no impact, I said this wrongly, no impact if you're losing your father, if you, unless you had to, uh, not yet started school. Getting into school having lost your father is very hard, but if you're in school, it appears there's no difference with anyone else, no gender impact. If we calculate what this means, say, in poverty levels in the long run, height actually is still very correlated with earnings in these societies, and we can find it even in our data, education is also important for earnings. In the longer term, it would mean orphans are, uh, can be expected to earn something like 8.5% less uh, throughout their adult life per year than uh, non-orphans. Another one that just fell off, it seems, actually, we also looked into maybe other things that happened. And very interestingly, we looked at age of marriage. And we find, actually, that those who have lost their father are 35% more likely to be married by the age of 20 than those who didn't lose their father. Okay? And maternal orphans are not married of earlier. So clearly one of the things these families don't do is that. Let me go fairly quickly now with some of these tentative conclusions. You know, what we may see in this kind of big picture things, economies have not collapsed. Even poverty levels and consumption is very hard to attribute them for this generation uh, to, to, to HIV AIDS and the crisis. However, there's quite a lot of what an economist would call human capital gets lost, education, health gets lost. And these families will actually see these effects persisting through time. We don't uncover the mechanisms very well, but I want to, with the kind of studies we do, we still do kind of broad picture, what Tony referred to as kind of macro picture. But the mechanisms are not very well uncovered in this as a result. But our results are here, and we should not forget, an awful lot of programs in Kagera and elsewhere were taking place for orphans. We still have these big impacts. Because of these families have, will have had all kinds of coping mechanisms and indeed ways of caring for orphans and so on in their communities. We find effects on nutrition, on age of marriage, on, on uh, education, despite all these things. Despite also all kinds of systems of locally caring for it. And I'll do this in a few minutes just to finish as it's actually two slides um, on, on a little bit, getting a little bit further with this all. And there's some interesting patterns I imagine. When I do this talk, then I very quickly get told and said, well, you know, uh, it will depend very much on the society and who typically gets assigned in terms of who should care for an orphan. Uh, and these kind of studies, what we are doing, can't really very well pick up matrilineal, patrilineal differences. Or indeed, even the big DHS type of studies can't get us anything. But there's some interesting patterns emerging here. And they're actually quite similar across lots of different countries. And one of the things is that, very typically, if you were to generalize about caring relationships in Africa, is that paternal orphans typically stay with the mother, with variation in it. In Ethiopia, it's 83%. In, in, in Uganda, it goes down to 59%. And in some countries, it's quite, quite different. But actually, it's always more that kind of caring taking place than maternal orphans still being cared for by the father. Remember our big impacts on, on the indicators that we have seems to go by maternal orphanhood. There, actually, losing your, uh, losing your father, sorry, losing your mother, actually means typically also you're not going to be brought up by your father anymore either. 
and you seem to be moving into typically, and this is generalizing, to other contexts. Quite a lot are still cared for by the father, but it's actually it's maternal orphans that typically end up with grandparents. Okay? Now, there's a, uh, a final thing that I will want to look at, because in this big DHS service, we can start asking ourselves, has this kind of increasing mortality, the increasing numbers of orphans, has it, say, in the last 10 years resulting maybe in any shift in these caring relationships? And this is quite interesting to look at here. This is actually ordering countries by HIV prevalence in 2005. And this is actually the change in the percentage of, of, of orphans living with a grandparent. And for paternal orphans, we actually get no pattern for most countries. It's a bit unclear whether it's up or down, except for these, and I can help you. This is countries like Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, Zambia. These are countries where there are massive increase in prevalence rates recently. There, increasingly, the paternal orphans are also going to the grandparent. But what is even more striking is here the final one, is actually the maternal orphans, is that we actually see that relative to 10 years ago, there's a much higher percentage ending up with grandparents than there used to be. And there's more and more orphans are being cared for by grandparents. So this is why where we get here, you know, we see some of these longer-term impacts. We see in our study area also quite important longer-term impacts, even though there's been an awful lot happening towards orphans. And actually, one of the things that I think become, starts emerging now also from, from the more macro data is that the caring arrangements um, may well also be under pressure. So what we find now may actually be changing even as we speak with grandparents becoming increasingly large. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you very, very to be talking um, at a lower, a smaller level than Stefan was, but um, for me, I'm an anthropologist, and I actually do talk about rather larger numbers than I'm used to with, with some of this data, which is a little bit of a departure for me. Um, and I'm taking data from an annual survey rounds, an in-depth longitudinal study of, I've lost a T, of the same population. I'm looking back, as Tony said, over 18 years in a population in southwest um, Uganda. So it's, um, I'll come to the, a bit of the background. It's the, um, as some of you know, I can see some familiar faces in the audience, the MRC UVRI general population cohort. We set it up in 1989 in 15 rural villages in Uganda. 25 villages it was expanded to in 2000. It's basically to look at the epidemiology of HIV, to trace the epidemic. The setting, you saw Stefan's map, we're just a bit further north. Um, we made a mistake at the very beginning, it's probably my fault. We talked about it as Southwest Uganda, it's not, it's Central Uganda, but we're stuck with calling it Southwest Uganda for the point of history. 
This is not, this is a, a give you an idea of the countryside. People living in the study area, largely subsistence farmers, um, produce small amounts of, of cash crops, bananas and coffee, um, small amounts of beans now, ethnically mainly Baganda, but there are um, Rwandese who've come in over the last 70 years, not necessarily just recent migrants in the area. Mixture of um, religions, but mainly Roman Catholic, mainly Christian, 28% um, Muslim in the population. 50% of the population is under 15, so a significant youthful um, population. Most of the households have less than five acres of land, and there are only a few sizable land holders, but there are very few people who don't have any land at all. Now, when I considered um, the changes, I was, I was there in 1989-93. I've been going back again since 2003, and I'm, I'm there again with my old job um, now in, in 2009. Now, when you look at the changes that have occurred, yes, there are significant changes in that 20-year period. There are salons in the trading center. The trading center is much bigger, mobile phone charging points. There are two mobile phone masks. Um, there are increased amount of corrugated iron for roofing, etc. improvements in housing. But some things haven't changed. The main road is still exactly the same as it was 20 years ago. The electricity supply is still fairly erratic. So there are significant changes in some areas that one would say to do with globalization, to do with the reach, particularly of communications, but some things really haven't changed at all in this particular area. Now, the population cohort, the big um, population cohort, which has been running since 1989, is covering 20,000 people, um, 4,000 households, and basically an, there's an annual survey round when demographic information is collected, there's a medical survey done. So we're able to trace that population over the last 20 years. We've got round 20 in progress at the moment. In fact, it's our 20th birthday in October. Now, this is the prevalence um, in the population. You can see that it was in the beginning um, hovering around 8-9%. Um, now coming down. There was a, a blip um, a couple of years ago. I asked for the recent data, round 19, which they couldn't add to the graph for me yet. So some uncertainty about quite what's happening now. But of course, one can expect prevalence to go up because of treatment. I mean, there are going to be people, there are people, many people living now with HIV and living on ART. So we've got, and you see that in this graph, the um, deaths in the early years really um, affecting the prevalence rate, but then as treatment improved, now you see um, that tiny um, slice of people who are still sadly dying because for various reasons, either getting onto treatment too late or whatever, um, but, and some people moving out who we, unlike Stefan, don't um, trace. We don't have the money to chase them all over the place. Now, the livelihood trajectory study. Now, in 1991-92, I um, was able to do a study of 27 households, um, which makes Stefan's examples look huge, 
Um, and we followed them for a year. And I got money a couple of years ago to do a follow-up of that, and we went back to look for those households to see what had happened. I had a second component, which is what the, ma the main part of the body of the data I'm going to present is coming from. We looked at 144 households, matched HIV positive, HIV negative, affected households, mainly if their household head or, and spouse were infected, matched against similar households that did not have such people infected. And the component three, which I'm not really going to talk about, we've been um, analyzing demographic data from the whole of the um, cohort data, data set, which is a task and a half. So as I said, the component one methods, it was an ethnographic um, study. I wrote it up in um, Health Policy and Planning in 1995, if anyone who wants to look at the methods. Uh, it, and we repeated that same study in exactly the same way with the same team leader amongst the local people um, who had led the a previous te team. We were able to trace 24 of the households, not necessarily the same people. In one case, it was the niece of someone who had died, and we, but she had been a member of the original household. Just so we had a, some idea of a similar number of households um, as we'd had 16 years before, which was the time period for, between the two studies. Now, 26 of those 27 households included in the follow-up, one refused to take part. Of these, 11 remained under the same household head. So as some of you might be aware, some of my work has now turned into a study of older people because some of these were um, people over 70. Um, five were under a different head and nine had dissolved, including households of two of the elderly female heads who'd relocated to be cared for by relatives. And AIDS-related death in the immediate or extended family had affected 24 of the households and the other two had been affected by deaths of friends, so it wasn't that they were completely unaffected. And, but HIV was blamed, or um, HIV was a, um, a, the attribution of the dissolution is only in three of the nine cases. Now, I had a theory in 1991-92 that one could come up for a framework, with a framework that would give you some idea of the households that would cope and the households that might be more vulnerable. It was partly trying to come up with some policy prescriptions of, of how one might intervene. And the, the framework was around socioeconomic status, land size, household composition. And it was three stages. You know, you were re relying, you were able to rely on family and friends. Then the next stage, they couldn't help anymore. You were so selling off assets. The third stage, the household dissolved. Well, I was wrong. I mean, when we came back, the households that I had predicted that this would happen to, that ne had not necessarily happened. It was a lot more complex than I had expected, which is what, you know, when we started looking at really some of the other things that were going on in the community. So component two, we were looking at this. this if you remember, I said it's 144 households. Infected households compared with uninfected control households, that's, and we took the household head and spouse, I wouldn't do it uh, the same way, again, we can discuss that later because I think um, of the issues about who is infected and, and how much that affects the households. We looked at different stages of the domestic cycle, 
And then we also, as Stefan had done, looked at um, issues around fostering. That's a bit about the sample. Early and late, let me explain. We decided to take two baselines because we'd got the, the introduction of the 10 additional villages in 2000. We said, okay, let's take half of the sample that households existed in 1989-90 and then the other half of the sample where we knew they were in existence 2000-2001. So we didn't exclude completely the new villages. And those early and late, each of those were half and half. The HIV-infected households matched with those that were not, did not have someone living with the infection or who had died from the infection in the household. And we had a rough socioeconomic rank, poor, less poor, richer, which I'm also not happy with now, and I'm also trying to redo. We had three tools. We used a calendar, which has gone remarkably well, I think, trying to trace back over the last 16, 20 years, changes in the household, changes um, in mobility, and also very broadly what was going on in terms of, of the agricultural system. And a household questionnaire, which was really that what the health economists were interested in, looking at changes over the last five years. So it's mainly the calendar data that I'm focusing on here. So land ownership. When we looked at that whole 144 households, we've got an average mean amount of land owned dropped from 3.5 to 3.4. I'm not going to discuss that, that gap between the HIV positives and the HIV negatives. I'm just, that's a sort of another topic for discussion. Um, but looking at the decline, there is more of a decline amongst HIV positive households than HIV negative. You'll see that little dip, that very annoying little dip um, around about 19, um, 99, and that was when there were rumours of a land tax coming in. And we found some movement among some of the richer households at that point trying to get rid of land. Didn't, nothing happened and they brought back land back in. So we've got sort of little things like that which, which um, affect what's going on which we had to investigate. Now, when we looked at land cultivation, let me try this here, the zero, is the year of death. So this was in three households in the early sample where a death had occurred before 2000, the early sample with a death after 2000, the late sample with a death. Now among the 15 early sample households whose heads had died before 2000, the graph shows that although the average amount of land cultivated was down, downward, there's this um, slight uptick, this little curve up. Um, in, in more recent years. The other ones continue to go down. So you see, before the death, cultivation is going down. After the death, cultivation continues to go down or flattens out. And here, it's going up again. Now, that suggests there is a time lag in recovery. But what it also suggests is that some of this may be to do with other relatives coming in, a change uh, in the domestic group. Um, affecting what's going on. And, you know, it's too early to tell whether that is going to continue to go up. But one can expect, okay, someone else has come in, someone else is cultivating now, if a household head 
and spouse have died. Now, fostering in and out. Now, the first graph shows the difference between households with someone living with HIV and those without in terms of fostering in of children. And you'll see the fostering in, the blue and the red, are mainly in the HIV negative households. But there is fostering in in the HIV positive households too. And then the second graph um, looks very busy. It shows a different picture. Fostering out is not solely the province of HIV positive households, so-called. Now, when you look at this society, as many other societies, fostering is something that happens. It's a part of um, socialization. It's a part of the way households manage the bringing up of children. It's not something new. So the, the fostering in, fostering out was going on anyway. It's been accentuated by HIV, or so it would seem we've got um, what we had hypothesized, that more children would go to HIV-negative households, but not exclusively. And also, in recent years, increasing numbers, numbers of children staying in or going into HIV-positive households, well, why not? If somebody's living on ART, then the expectation of a longer life of the, house, the family staying together or being, still being um, able to take care of, of children still exists. Um, extended household, that, that means a grandparents with grandchildren or lateral extension, a joint family, brothers perhaps living together. HIV negative households are about twice as likely to be extended as our HIV positive households in both the early and late samples. Now if that, that fits with the fostering, now if you are um, taxed because of care, taking um, care of someone who is, is sick, or because of um, the death affects the resources, it makes sense that you're not necessarily going to be able to take in large numbers of relatives. So you see here, we've got getting very small sam um, sample sizes by 2000, so we're not um, reading too much into the dip in the green um, line at the end of that graph. I want to quickly move on to crops, because we tried to look at what was happening in the, the cropping systems, because as Stefan said, we, there was this feeling that there was this disaster waiting to happen, and FAO in particular had written quite a lot about um, the threat to farming systems, so we were very anxious to look at what was going on in that. Now maize has become more widely cultivated, you can see cultivation of maize going up by household HIV status, but also by wealth status. Now it's a bit later for the richer ones, but everybody is gradually growing more maize. The second most popular crop, beans. That's also not very dramatic curves, but it's, it's a widely cultivated crop. 70-80% of households are cultivating beans. Interesting one is matoke. I mean, anybody from Uganda here who has spent time there will know that this is, um, in this area, the staple food. And, and a meal without matoke for many people isn't a proper meal. But what we found was a trend downward in both groups by HIV status and in most wealth groups, um, with a possible exception of the less poor from the early sample. And it's cult it, uh, in 2006, 2007, it was cultivated by less than 40% of the households in our study, in this 144. I just threw in a picture of some Matoke just in case um, anybody's feeling homesick. And coffee. 
Now, this is an, another crop that's declined in popularity. You've got, especially among HIV-negative households, among the better-off households, less than 40% of households reported that they were now growing coffee. This was in 2006, 2007. And this was particularly strong in the late sample households, I don't know why, with less than 20% of growing coffee by 2007. And livestock, just we've got um, very little actually on, in change in other livestock, but in cows there was increasing popularity, particularly among HIV positive early sample households and HIV negative late sample households. About 25-30% of the households in all wealth groups reported raising cows. This reached nearly 50% in the better off households. Um, so increasing number of, of cows around in, in many of the households. But, you know, how much of this is anything at all to do with HIV? And I think there are serious issues around attribution which have to be taken into account. This is the annual rainfall. And there are lots of problems with mean annual rainfall. I mean, anybody who's got a garden in, in UK at the moment will know that if there's a, no rain for a, a week and, or two weeks and it's so dry out there, your beans aren't going to grow as well. But if there's a big downpour and it all washes away, that won't necessarily do them much good. So the, the distribution of the rain is very important. Even so, I remember that drought in 91, 92, and people really were suffering. Lots of crops were severely affected at that time, and that affected people's approach to the farming system. Changes started there towards cassava to, to really what, um, in other contexts, might be called famine foods, that, that insurance. Now, 2004, 2005, it was also very dry. I remember going back in 2003, 2004 to the area and being quite shocked by how dry it was. Now, it doesn't look so bad on this particular graph, but I think that, that a lot of that is to do with when the rain fell. You can have a lot in a short time, but it doesn't really do you much good. So we've got other factors too, and what I haven't done yet, but I'm planning to do in the next phase of this research, is to try and map out when there was a severe problem with coffee wilt. Coffee suffered from a fall in the market, the global market, so people became less interested in coffee, as they had in the past been less interested in cotton when cotton market fell. And then there was um, problems with disease. Bacterial wilt, wilt in banana is a, is a big issue still in Uganda. Bringing in of resistance varieties has happened. Cassava mosaic disease, Newcastle disease, um, annual event in many of the areas with poultry. These things are affecting the farming systems much more in a way than the um, impact of HIV, except if you've lost a lot of labor that could help you to deal with a pest attack. Changes in diet preferences. Matoke is hard work. You peel, you steam, and then you knead with your hands, and it's, it hurts. You, you know, the women who do it, um, it's really um, a difficult thing to do. It's not a fast food. And some of my older friends 
in the village complain that their daughters aren't in the least bit interested in growing, in cooking matoko. They'd much rather make the maize porridge because it was quicker and easier to do. So there's changes in diet preferences and much more likely because of the effects on, I think it was drought that's affected the matoke, maize coming in, and there you see some, to some extent, a permanent change in, in diet. Agricultural extension advice, that's certainly a factor. Um, a failed attempt to bring in vanilla, for example, distracted um, some people's attention from other crops. I've mentioned the ground rent. There's also issues around taxation. And MRC, UVRI, we are not dealing with a typical village are a typical area in Uganda anymore. 20 years of a research program there has had an effect, an employment effect. If, in fact, we've just recently done some work looking at the impact on, on um, adult um, lifespan and so forth, and we've got a much um, bigger percentage of people who are over 70 than in other nearby populations. So we've had an impact on people's health, which is positive. Very quickly, I just want to tell two, two stories. And this is from the component one qualitative data. And just to try and put some faces to some of the, the graphs. And the first one I want to talk about is Regina. She was um, fostering her sister's children in 1991 when we first met her. Her sister had died as a result of AIDS. She had already been separated and she'd come to live as happens often um, with women who are separated or widowed if they're not able to stay um, on a husband's land, living on, on land given to, to them by their parents. Now, Regina also died short, about, in about 1992, and her children were in their teens then, and her, a third sister uh, called Mary moved in to, to take care of the children there. Even though she had a family, she didn't take the children to her husband's place, she stayed on that land because she wanted to make sure she kept the land um, and she had effectively um, inherited it. When the children moved out, they were teenagers, um, Mary moved back to her husband's home but her son came and he's cultivating the land now. So if you looked at the graph for that land, you do indeed see cultivation going down and now with the young man coming in, cultivation is going up again. Same family, but different people. Medina, she's a widow. She's raised her grandson and granddaughter um, because her daughter remarried and the daughter could not take the children to the new, um, her husband's home. Grandchildren have grown up and they've moved away. Medina's daughter was widowed. She was living in the same village, but she came back to mum um, when she was widowed because her husband's family didn't want her um, to stay around. But she, her husband had died of AIDS-related illnesses and the, the daughter, very sadly, last year um, died as a result of AIDS too. She started ART too late, one of the, the sad cases where it's not doesn't work. Now, Medina, she's in her 80s. She's unable to cultivate. And we had a worrying time for about six months. We really wondered what we could do to support this old lady. Neighbors were helping. She was re really feeling helpless because she couldn't cultivate the land. So it was a boon for her when her grandson's work um, dried up in Kampala and he 
had a new wife, he had a new baby, he came back. Now he's cultivating the land and basically taking care of grandma, although I don't think he's taking care of her very well, but at least um, he's there. So, in conclusion, yes, HIV and AIDS does throw households into disarray and poverty, but it reduces development, it hinders some households from getting out of poverty. I'm not doubting that, but if you look at the surviving members, particularly of component one, they've been remarkably resilient because it's not just HIV. There are all sorts of other things that people have dealt with for many years, which people are still dealing with. It's, it's not um, a, a happy ending. It's very difficult, but we shouldn't just attribute everything to HIV. Rainfall, changes, crop, animal disease, many other things that people are coping with. And I think that gives us a much more complex picture than I ever imagined was there when I started looking at this um, nearly 20 years ago. Thank you. Now, in two cases, 
it was didn't fit that definition because one of them was Rigid Gina's um, niece who had married and is actually outside the study area but we included her because um, she was very when we traced her she was very keen to take part and actually I was very keen to have her included because she was a maternal well she was a double orphan and she had had three different foster mothers. She fitted very nicely with the pattern that Stefan has described to some extent, uh, marrying early to get out of that particular situation. So with lots of reasons why I wanted her to include. So I was opportunistic about that. Um, on the second question, which I'm wrestling to remember. Yeah. We kept it with the original status, and that caused us... I mean, I have a lot of problems with the way that was defined, and I'm not... And that's why I wouldn't do it again that way, because it... it I mean, it, very few actually did change status, but it was enough to cause us a problem. Yeah. Please? Yeah. Uh, Okay, my name is Keith Raffin. Um, yeah, I just want to, I'm not a statistician, so can I just say, would Professor Durkon uh, agree that there are some leading economists who'd very much disagree with the picture he's painted of, of economic growth in Africa? I think immediately of Professors Collier and Kwa. I mean, that the amount of children, number of children taken out of poverty, number of adults taken out of poverty in the last 20 years has largely been in China, and there's been actually a sinking of, of more people into poverty in Africa. It is the, con the country that most troubles us. And when he talks of collapse, everything's relative. I mean, there isn't much far further for Africa to go. And certainly Zimbabwe has collapsed with the highest recorded inflation rate in history. Um, the second point, I think, is, is uh, really about government policy. And this is where, I suppose, Uganda comes in, that w what both speakers think of the relative influence of government policy, what everyone thinks of, of President Museveni, he's got a relatively enlightened reputation in terms of treating AIDS, and, uh, and Uganda's a relative success story. Of course, the very reverse is true of, of President Mbeki, and it's not exactly hopeful about President Zuma now in South Africa. Yes, no, I, I think the, the last thing I want to do is uh, paint uh, a beautiful picture of, of what's going on um, in African growth. But um, I mean, it's interesting that you mention Paul Collier there. Um, I don't know what Danny Kwa knows really about Africa, but uh, Paul Collier definitely knows about it. And um, I mean, he would definitely not have disagreed. Is, there is, it is striking that in the last, uh, it's not the case that uh, in the last 10 years, growth in Africa has gone down dramatically. I mean, this being going up, Zimbabwe is really an outlier in this respect. Um, all I want to say here is that uh, it's, it's this issue of attribution, it is, it is um, there has actually been uh, growth in a period where all these models that were done in the early 90s would have predicted the big decline, and secondly, it's very hard to actually say that HIV/AIDS has had a big growth impact in, uh, in, 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 in on the African continent, um, and it, this is saying almost with an element of regret in terms of saying, you know, that the growth process we've had was actually not that dependent on skilled labour. Um, 
and that even the growth process we have now in Africa is not quite dependent on it. That's probably more than. Yes, but actually, we could talk for a long time about that. I'm actually doing quite a lot of work these days on, on rethinking about issues to do with labor surplus and so on. And it's the last thing I wanted to be is an, uh, an economist identified with the idea of labor surplus. But I'm afraid there's quite a lot of evidence that actually there is unfortunately more labor surplus than uh, in ways we hadn't quite probably understood and not as we would have said it in the 1960s about it, but actually that these economies are are basically, the constraint is not labor, unfortunately. And uh, we can go all kinds of ways. It has implications of what we do in education in Africa and so on. There is big concerns. But um, I'm, I'm happy to talk later on about it. And we could do this for a long time, I'm sure. You, I, just to pick up briefly on policy. Um, I think it's, it's, Uganda, it's quite complex. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt that in the early years, the leadership of um, the president, but also civil society, Tasso, um, was important. But I think one of the, the biggest um, effects was the impact of, of people dying. And that um, has not had a lasting effect on behavior change. I mean, I think it's, Uganda has, um, dined out on the success, which actually is very fragile. And I think that that, that is worrying, and that's, that's certainly something that, that's worrying a lot of people. There's a very important speaker question at the back there. Please say who you are. Thank you. Um, I, I spent much of... Uh, no, you need to say who you are first. Um, uh, Marcus Hacker. I, you know me from uh, working at the IMF, but uh, now I'm at the London School of Hygiene and uh, tr Tropical Medicines. Uh, I spent much of uh, the last eight years studying the uh, impacts of HIV AIDS and growth, and I, I uh, came out with very similar conclusions to the ones that uh, you have done. If I look at uh, the countries in Southern Africa with very high HIV prevalence, uh, and look at the growth pattern there. There are three countries where uh, economic growth has really dropped. One is Botswana, where diamond mining has leveled off. One is Swaziland, which no longer benefits from not being South Africa and getting uh, investment targeting the uh, South African market. And one is Zimbabwe, and the uh, economic crisis in Zimbabwe has not been caused by HIV-AIDS. Uh, other than that, I cannot just looking at the data, I cannot see much of an impact of HIV AIDS on economic growth. My comments uh, to your presentations uh, regard the uh, discussion of the impact of HIV AIDS on orphans. And there I find that you are misreading the impact of HIV AIDS on double orphans. Uh, the, uh, it is uh, correct that uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, five to ten percent of orphans are double orphans, uh, but this uh, does not capture the impact of HIV/AIDS uh, as uh, among uh, uh, children orphans uh, as a consequence of HIV/AIDS. Uh, Thirty, or in extreme cases, uh, say Botswana, even uh, forty-ish percent uh, of the orphans can be 
double orphans. Uh, so this is very much uh, an aspect of the uh, impact of HIV-AIDS. And uh, uh, as a consequence of that, I, I think uh, one of uh, your last slides also was, uh, you did not interpret that uh, correctly as uh, a much higher proportion of maternal orphans also is dou are dou double orphans than is the case with paternal orphans. Uh, you get, uh, this ex explains part of the differences in the patterns of care that you are describing. Um, actually, I, uh, well, on the first point, I, I, I agree, and I, I, I know of your evidence, then the, the, um, on, on the misrepresentation, you know, there's actually, uh, this comes from a, a study by Beagle, Beagle and Filmer and so on, that I'm sure you are familiar with. Um, if you look at the picture of the double orphans, then uh, um, I have it here in my back, actually, they also make that distinction and the picture actually, uh, I, no, I agree with you that there is a high percentage of the maternal orphans would be of that nature. Um, but my understanding is, uh, from, from them, is that, the, um, that this would still be the case if you only took the maternal orphans that are not double orphaned. That the kind of pattern is still there, but maybe uh, you could talk about. That was my understanding, that the pattern is still there even if you excluded the double orphans from this picture, okay? But I'm very happy to talk about it. Uh, the, 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 further. Yeah. the question I'd address to both of you, because it sounds to the general audience like a rather arcane point, in just very, very quick time, what's the policy implication of whether it is or isn't? Is there, any, is there a policy implication? I mean, it's very interesting. I, I find it interesting. I'm not, I'm not denigrating the question or the discussion. <laughs> I think it's a very interesting question. But does it tell us anything? What would it tell us in terms of interventions? OK. There was a lady there. <laughs> yes, yes, you, ma'am. Yeah, you think, they'll think about it. Give us an answer afterwards. Um, my name is Shalini Bharat. I come from India. Hello, Tony. <laughs> we met last time. Uh, I have a question for uh, Dr. Dirk, and there's a very similar question about, you know, double orphans, and I also thought that I think it was uh, not really showing the true impact, that it will have huge policy impacts, because there's this big rollout after the ART, I think the biggest rollout then in Africa is for orphans and vulnerable children. So what happens to the OVC program is a very huge question. And I think it would uh, be very important to look at those figures a little more carefully, because uh, at this point in time, a lot of hope is being pinned on those uh, programs, pre uh, precisely for the reason that you say that perhaps these programs will put back children in the schools and eliminate you know, um, their uh, falling out. But I'm quite interested that uh, there is no gender impact, which probably would be very different from what it would be the case in Asia, if I can you know, think about. Uh, the other question that I had was about uh, how do you explain uh, maternal impact, uh, you know, uh, maternal orphans having a greater impact than paternal, uh, you know, orphans? And I think it would be important for you to look into some of the reasons because um, usually paternal, um, when, a, when a mother dies, father would probably marry again and, you know, uh, would have uh, more other children and therefore 
there could be different type of dynamics there. I think from a policy angle, again, it would be important to see why this might be happening and what does the communities tell us about, you know, two different types of deaths. Can I just say something about orphans? I mean, one thing that um, that Stefan's data doesn't show, which I think is very important, is these children are not static. And um, there's a very interesting um, uh, PhD thesis from the London School, Susan Cassede from last year, which is from the component two data, which shows just 14 children who've moved more than three times, you know, as they age. And that's what I'm worried about with this data talking about care, because if you take policy decisions on the basis of a certain period of time, those children may not be there anymore. And we went back um, a couple of months ago just to, to feedback findings to the, to the children. Seven out of the 14 are nowhere to be found. You know, they've, they've, as soon as they've got in their lower teens, they've gone to Kampala. You know, there are real implications um, there which isn't, is not shown in, in this sort of data. Um, just on, in terms of, of, of on, uh, on, on, on the double orphans and also on the kind of living arrangements of, 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 of where uh, orphans are, um, maybe there is an element of, of a potential misunderstanding what I'm trying to say on double orphans. I'm what, I can s what I'm concerned with is that our type of studies can't properly, um, even though we have a number of double, double orphans in the kind of samples we have, and I know from some of the people who've been doing similar studies, the numbers are relatively small and we feel too small to actually generalize about the additional impact. We would have normally expected the following, that uh, paternal orphanhood, maternal orphanhood, um, uh, each would have certain impacts, say for example on education. And that if an orphan is then also double orphaned, that it would be a further impact, a bigger impact. We don't see that in any of the data, and I know the Kenya data that Ed Miguel studies, in the, uh, the, and I, I know quite a few of the different, the Young Life study, we don't find additional impacts when we try to test that in our studies. Now, we want to be more careful here by saying we're a bit agnostic about it because we know these samples are quite small. So we, we have not emphasized the double orphans not because they are not important, whether from policy or not, but, uh, but because we think that our kind of studies are not properly capturing them. Okay? And in any case, I can say the statistical evidence suggests that, put it simply, if we distinguish also in terms of impact of double orphans, we don't find any further effects your impact as a double orphan is the sum of your impact of, this, of, of a mother maternal orphan and a paternal orphan. That's as bad as far as we can get. Now, again, let's say a bit of agnostic. The related issue is on terms of living arrangements. And that you raise that kind of, do we want to kind of un unpack further, you know, why is it that a maternal orphan seems to have this impact? Now, I, I will, will say that it's not by want of trying that we don't come up with it. Okay, on the one level, what we've tried to look very carefully at, whether these actual living arrangements in our data, where the child ends up living, does it actually make a difference in this maternal orphanage effect? Actually, 
we don't really find any differences. We have looked at wealth difference, uh, different effects, actually this maternal orphanhood, when we further interacted with other kinds of possible factors, we don't find actually further things. Now, again, we, we start hitting small cell problems, smaller samples, you know, this when we start distinguishing different things. Again, we are more agnostic about it, and unfortunately our studies can't quite tell it. And it's more, I think, what the things that Janet is doing may well be able to tell a bit more about that. But it is striking at the same time, although we don't want to overemphasize this, that it's not an obvious pattern that we get. We don't find in an obvious way that the children who are, say, losing their mother and end up with the grandparents are not poor, worse off and those who end up living with some other unrelated relative, uh, unrelated person are worse off. We can't find any of these kind of patterns. And they would, have, of course, have implications and, and, and impacts. But we, we don't see it, and we are puzzled by it. But probably because, is what you were kept at saying, the way families have been resilient is also a bit more complex than actually maybe some, somehow you could phrase in type of hypothesis. Okay, so we get bigger impacts, and that big impacts, but that's about as far as we get. Last question. That was your question. How very expert of you. That's fantastic. We've hit 8 o'clock. Um, let me remind you, folks, you are the elite. You heard <laughs> the lecture which told you new things here at the LSE. We're very grateful to Department of International Development for sponsoring this series of lectures. We're very grateful for, to the event staff who have handled